Section 5 of Martin Pippin in the Apple Orchard by Eleanor Farshan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. The King's Barn continued. On Monday morning, when he arrived at the forge, he found the lad at work before him, and Ebony was not blacker than his face. He glanced at the king with some show of temper, but only said, You look worn out. I have had bad dreams, said the king. Excuse me for being behind my time. I will try to make up for it by wasting no more and fashioning instantly two shoes as good as that I made on Saturday. But though he handled his tools with more dexterity than he had yet exhibited, the lad petulantly pushed aside the first shoe he made, which to the king appeared to be, if anything, superior to the one he had made on Saturday. The lad, however, quickly explained himself, saying, A master smith who intends to make his apprentice his equal will not let him rest at the halfway house. I made a shoe like this when I was fourteen, and all my father said was, I have hopes of you. So for yet another week the king's nose was kept to the grindstone, and it would have irritated most men to find their good work repeatedly condemned. But William was, as you may have observed, singularly sweet-tempered, besides which he desired nothing so much as to remain where he was. And for another five days he slept and ate and worked, until the muscles of his arms began to swell, and he swung the hammer with as much ease as his master, who now left a great part of the work entirely in his hands, although in the matter of the third shoe he refused to be satisfied. Nevertheless, on Saturday morning, the king, making a last effort before the forge was shut, submitted a shoe so far beyond anything he had yet achieved, that the lad could not but say, This is a good shoe. And Pepper, seeing them coming, lifted her off hind foot to be shod. Now as I live, cried the king, another stone! And how she contrived to hobble so far is a miracle! It isn't a stone, said the lad, it is a diamond and he presented to the king a diamond of such triumphant brilliance that it might have been conceived of the ambitions of the mightiest monarch of the earth. "'You now own surpassing wealth,' said the lad dejectedly, "'and you have no more need to work.' But William would not even touch the stone. "'Keep it,' he said, "'for you have befriended me for a week, and I have given you only the strength of my arms.' "'Let it be so,' said the lad gently, and put the diamond in his belt. I must not keep my great-aunt waiting. There's a cake in the larder. So saying, he went his way, and the king went his, which, as you may surmise, was to the bath and his clean clothes. He did not go into the larder, and an hour before sunset made the ascent of the hill, and for the third time stood like a conqueror upon the crest. And as he gazed over the lands below, his heart throbbed with a passion for the earth that was half agony and half love, unless it was the whole agony of love. "'Most beautiful earth!' he cried aloud. "'Only as you recede from me do I realize how necessary it is for me to possess you. How is it that when I possess you I know you not as I know you now? But, oh, if you are so wonderful from these great hills, what must you be from the greater hills of the air?' 
and he looked up and saw the sun descending in the west. Sweet earth, he sighed, you would hold me when I should be gone, and never remind me that the moment to depart is due. And he stretched out his arms to her, sealed up his lips, and went into the ring. Once more he knelt between the great beeches, and sank all thoughts in pious contemplation, till suddenly those still waters were convulsed as though with stormy currents, and a wild song beat through his breast, so that he could not believe it was the bird singing from a short distance. It was as though the storm of music broke from his singing heart, yes, from his own heart singing with some unexpressed fulfillment. He was barely conscious of going through the trees, with eyes shut tight against the outer world, but soon he was kneeling at the brink of the pond, while the surge of joy and pain in the song broke on his spirit like waves upon a shore, or love upon a man and a woman. Washed back, towered up, and broke on him again. And at last, on one full glorious phrase, it ceased. And at that instant, deep in the pond, he saw the full orb of the moon, and dipped his head. Oh, when he lifted it, startled and illuminated, he saw on the far side of the pond a woman standing. The moonlight bathed her form from head to foot. Her hair was thrown behind her, and she stood facing him, so that in the cold, clear light he could see her fully revealed. Her strong, tender face, her strong, soft body, her strong, slim legs, her strong and lovely arms. As white as May-blossom she was, and beauty went forth from her like fragrance from the shaken bough. So he knelt on his side, and she stood on hers, both motionless, but gazing into each other's eyes, and his heart broke, even as it had broken at the bird's song, with a passion to take her in his arms, for it seemed to him that this alone would mend its breaking. Or if he might not do this, at least to send his need of her in a great cry across the pond. And as his passion grew, she slowly lifted her arms, and opened them to him as though to bid him enter. And her lips parted, and she cried out, as though she were uttering the cry of his own soul. Beloved! All the joy and the pain fulfilled of the bird's song were gathered in that word. Glorified he leapt up, his whole being answering the cry of hers. But before his lips could translate it, he was gripped by a mighty agony, and sneeze after sneeze shook all his senses, so that he was utterly helpless. When he was able to look up again, he saw the woman moving towards him round the pond, and suddenly he clapped his hands over his eyes and fled towards the ring, as though pursued by demons. Here he passed the remainder of the night, but in what sort of prayers I leave you to imagine, as also amid what ravings he passed his Sunday. On Monday the lad was again before him at the forge, and a crow's wing had looked milky beside his face. He did not raise his eyes as the king came in, but said, You look very ill. He said it furiously. I have had nightmares, said the king, Pardon me, if you can. I will get to work and make my final shoe. But though he had now little more to learn in his craft, the lad, when the shoe was made, 
picked it up in his pinchers and flung it to the other end of the forge. Yet the king now knew enough to know that few smiths could have made its equal. So he looked surprised, at which the lad, controlling himself, said, When I pass your fourth shoe, you will need no more masters. I forged a shoe like that one yonder when I was fifteen, and my father said of it, You will make a smith one day. And on neither Tuesday, nor Wednesday, nor Thursday, nor Friday could the king succeed in pleasing the lad. The better his shoes, the angrier grew his young master, that they were not good enough. Yet between these gusts of temper he was gentle and remorseful, and once the king saw tears in his eyes, and another time the lad came humbly to ask for pardon. Then William laughed and put out his hand, but as once before the lad slipped his behind his back and said, It is so dirty, friend. And this time he would not let William take it, so the king was forced instead to lay his arm about the lad's shoulder and press it tenderly. But the lad made no response, and only stood hanging his head until the king removed his arm. All the same, when next the king made a shoe he was full of rage, and stamped on it and ran out of the forge, which surprised the king all the more because it was so excellent a shoe. Yet he was secretly glad of his rejection for he felt it would break his heart to go away from that place, and he could think of no good cause for remaining once Pepper was shod. So there he stayed, eating, sleeping, and working, while the thews of his back became as strong under the smooth skin as the thews of a beech-tree under the smooth bark. And his craft was such that the lad at last left the whole of the work of the forge in his charge, for there was nothing he could not do surpassingly well and this the lad admitted, save only in the case of the fourth shoe. But on Saturday, just before closing time, the king set to, and made a shoe so fine that when the lad saw it, he said quietly, I could not make a better. Had he not said so, he must have lied, or proved that he did not know a masterpiece when he saw it. And he was too good a craftsman for that, besides being honest. Pepper instantly lifted up her near hind foot. "'Upon my word!' exclaimed the king. "'The world is full of stones, and Pepper has found them all. The wonder is that she did not fall down on the road.' "'This is not a stone,' said the lad. "'It is an opal.' And he displayed an opal, of such marvellous changeability, such milk and fire, shot with such shifting rainbows, that it was as though it had had birth of all the moods of all the women of all time. "'This enriches you for life,' said the lad gloomily, "'and now you are free of masters forever.' But William thrust his hands into his pockets. "'Keep it,' he said, "'for this week you have given me love, "'and I have given you nothing but the sinews of my body.' The lad looked at him and said, I have given you hard words, and fits of temper, and much injustice. Have you? said William. I remember only your tenderness and your tears, so keep the opal in love's name. The lad tried to answer, but could not, and he slipped the opal under his shirt. Then he faltered. My great-aunt! And still he could not speak. But he made a third effort, and said, there is a cake in the larder, and turned on his heel and went away quickly. 
and the king looked after him till he was out of sight, and then very slowly went to his bath and his fresh linen. But he left the cake where it was. And he sat by the door of the forge with his face in his hands, until the length of his shadow warned him that he must go. And he rose and went for the last time up the hill, but with a sinking heart. And when he stood on the top and gazed upon the beauty of the earth he had left below, in his breast was the ache of loss and longing for one he had loved, and with his eyes he tried to draw that beauty into himself, but the void in him remained unfulfilled. Yet never had her beauty been so great. Beloved and lovely earth, he whispered, why do you appear most fair and most desirable now that I am about to lose you? Why, when I had you, did you not hold me by force and tell me what you were? Only now I discover you from mid-heaven. But, oh, in what way should I discover you from heaven itself? And he looked upward, and, lo, a blurred sun shone upon him, swimming to its rest. Farewell, dear earth, said the king, since you cannot mount to me, and I may not descend to you. And he knelt upon the turf, and laid his cheek and forehead to it, and then he rose, sealed up his lips, and passed into the ring. Between the two tall beeches he sank down, and all sense and thought and consciousness sank with him, as though his being had become a dead forgotten lake, hidden in a lifeless wood, where birds sang not, nor rain fell, nor fishes played, nor currents moved below the stagnant waters. But presently a wind seemed to wail among the trees, and the sound of it travelled over the king's senses, stirred them, and passed. But only to return again, moan over him and trail away. And so it kept coming and going, till first he heard, then listened to, and at last realized the haunting signal of the bird. And he went forth into the open night, his eyes wide apart, but seeing nothing until he stumbled at the pond and crouched beside it. The bird grew fainter and fainter, and presently the sound, like a ghost at dawn, ceased to exist. And at that instant, under the pond, he beheld the lessening circle of the moon, and dipped his head. Alas, when he lifted it, shivering and stunned, he saw the form he longed to see on the other side of the pond, but not as he had longed to see it, gazing at him with the love and glory of seven nights ago. Now she stood on the turf, half turned from him, and the wave of her hair blew to and fro like a cloud, now revealing her white side, now concealing it. And he looked, but she would not look. So he knelt on his side, and she remained on hers, both motionless. And suddenly the impulse to sneeze arose within him, and at that instant she began to move, not towards him as before, but away from him downhill. At that he could bear no more, and quelling the impulse with a mighty effort, he got upon his feet, crying, Beloved, stay! Beloved, stay! Beloved! And he staggered round the pond as quickly as his shaking knees would let him. But quicker still she slid away, and when he came where she had been, the place was as empty as the sky in its moonless season. He called and ran about, and called again, but he got no answer, nor found what he sought. 
All that night he spent in calling and running to and fro. What he did on Sunday you may know, and I may know, but he did not. On Sunday night he stayed beside the pond, but whatever his hopes were they received no fulfillment. On Monday night he was there again, and on Tuesday and on Wednesday, and between the mornings and the nights he went from hill to hill, seeking her hiding-place who came to bathe in the lake. There was not a hill within a day's march that did not know him, from Duncton to Mount Harry. But on none of them he found the woman. How he lived is a puzzle, perhaps upon wild raspberries. After the sun had set on Chanctonbury on Saturday night, he came exhausted to the ring again, and stood on that high hill gazing earthward. But there was no light above or below, and he said, I have lost all, for the earth is swallowed in blackness, and the woman has disappeared into space, and I myself have cast away my spiritual initiation. I will sit by the pond till midnight, and if the bird sings, then I will still hope, but if it does not, I will dip my head in the water, and not lift it again. So he went and lay down by the pond in the darkness, and the hours wore away. And as the time of the bird's song drew near, he clasped his hands and prayed. But the bird did not sing, and when he judged that midnight was come, he got upon his knees, and prepared to put his head under the water. And as he did so, he saw, on the opposite side of the pond, the feeble light of a lantern. He could not see who held it, because even as he looked the bearer blew out the light. But in that moment it appeared to him that she was as black as the night itself. So for a while he knelt upon his side, and she remained on hers, both trembling. But at last the king, dreading to startle her away, rose softly and went round the pond to where he had seen her. He said into the night in a shaking voice, I cannot see you. If you are there, give me your hand. And out of the night a shaking voice replied, It is so dirty, beloved. Then he took her in his arms, and felt how she trembled, and he held her closely to him to still her, whispering, You are my lad. Yes, said she in a low voice, but wait. And she slipped out of his embrace, and he heard her enter the pond, and she stayed there as it seemed to him a lifetime. But presently she rose up, and even in that black night the whiteness of her body was visible to him, and she came to him as she was, and laid her head on his breast, and said, I am your woman. I want my apple, said Martin Pippin. But is this the end? cried little Joan. Why not? said Martin. The lovers are united. Jocelyn. Nonsense! Of course it is not the end. You must tell us a thousand other things. Why was the woman a woman on Saturday night, and a lad all the rest of the week? Joyce. What of the four jewels? Jennifer. Which of the answers to the king's riddle was the right one? Jessica. What happened to the cake? Jane. What was her name? Please, said little Joan, do not let this be the end, but tell us what they did next. Women will be women, observed Marden. 
and to the end of time prefer unessentials to the essential, but I will endeavour to satisfy you on the points you name. In the morning William said to his beloved, Now tell me something of yourself. How come you to be so masterful a smith? Why did you live as a black lad all the week, and turn only into a white woman on Saturdays? Have you really got a great aunt, and where does she live? How old are you? Why were you so hard to please about the shoeing of pepper? And why, the better my shoes, the worse your temper? Why did you run away from me a week ago? Why did you never tell me who you were? Why have you tormented me for a whole month? What is your name? Trust a man to ask questions, said his beloved, laughing and blushing. Is it not enough that I am your beloved? More than enough, yet not nearly enough, said the king. For there is nothing of yourself which you must not tell me in time, from the moment when you first stole barley sugar behind your father's back down to that in which you first loved me. Then I had best begin at once, she smiled, or a lifetime will not be long enough. I am eighteen years old, and my name is Viola. I was born in Farmer, and my father was the best smith in all Sussex, and because he had no other child he made me his bellows-boy and in time, as you know, taught me his trade. But he was, as you also know, a stern master, and it was not until on my sixteenth birthday I forged a shoe the equal of your last that he said I could not make a better. And so saying, he died. Now I had no other relative in all the world except my great-aunt, the wise woman of the bush-hovel, and her I had never seen. But I thought I could not do better in my extremity than go to her for counsel. So shouldering my father's tools, I journeyed west until I came to her place, and found her trying to break in a new birch-broom that was still too green and full of sap to be easily mastered, and she was in a very bad temper. "'Good day, great-aunt,' I said. "'I am your great-niece, Viola.' "'I have no more use for great-nieces,' she snapped, "'than for little ones.' And she continued to tussle with the broomstick and took no further notice of me. Then I went into the hovel, where a fire burned on the hearth, and I took out my tools and fashioned a bit on the hob. And when it was ready, I took it to her and said, This will teach it its manners. And she put the bit on the broom, which became as docile as a lamb. Great niece, said she, it appears that I told you a lie this morning. What can I do for you? Tell me, if you please, how I am to live now that my father is dead. There is no need to tell you, said she. You have your living at your fingers' ends. But women cannot be smiths, said I. Then become a lad, said she, and ply your trade where none knows you. And lest men should suspect you by your face, which fools though they be, they might easily do, let it be so sooted from week's end to week's end that none can discover what you look like. And if any one remarks on it, put it down to your trade. But great aunt, I said, I could not bear to go dirty from week's end to week's end. If you will be so particular, she said, take a bath every Saturday night, and spend your Sundays with me as fair as when you were a babe. And before you go to work again on Monday, you shall once more conceal your fairness past all men's penetration. But, dear great-aunt, I pleaded, it may be that the day will come when I might not wish. And here, dear maidens, Vila faltered and William put his arm about her a little tighter, because it was there already, and said, What might you not wish, beloved? 
and she murmured, To be concealed past one man's penetration. And my great-aunt said, I need not worry. Because though men, she said, were fools, there was one time in every man's life when he was quick enough to penetrate all obscurities, whether it were a lair of soot or a night without a moon. And she hid her face on the king's shoulder, and he tried to kiss her, but could not make her look up, until he said, Or even a woman's waywardness? Then she looked up of her own accord and kissed him. In this way, she resumed, it became my custom on each Saturday, after closing the forge, to come here with my woman's raiment, and wait in a hollow until night had fallen, and make myself clean of the week's blackness, for I dared not do this by daylight, or be seen going forth from my forge in my proper person. "'But why did you choose to bathe at midnight?' asked the king. She was silent for a few moments, and then said hurriedly, "'I did not choose to bathe at midnight until a month ago. For the rest,' she resumed, I was hard to please in the matter of the shoes, because I knew that when they were finished you would ride away, and therefore the more you improved the crosser I became, and if I have tormented you for a month, it was because you tormented me by refusing to speak when you saw me here, because of your hateful vow, and you would not even look at my cake in the larder. Women are strange, said the king. How do you know I did not look at the cake? I do know she said as hurriedly as before, and if I would not tell you who I was, it was because I could not bear, on the other hand, to exhort from you a love you seemed so reluctant to endure, until, indeed, it became of its own accord too strong even for the purpose which brought you every week to the ring. For I knew that purpose, since all dwellers in Washington know why men go up the hill with the new moon. But when my love did become too strong for my vow, and opened my lips at last, said the king. Why did you run away? Viola said, Had you not run away the week before? And now I have answered all your questions. No, said the king, not all. You haven't told me when you first loved me. Viola smiled and said, I first stole barley sugar when my father said, This is for the other little girl over the way and I first loved you when, seeing you had been too absent-minded to know that Pepper had cast her shoes, I feared you were in love. But that was three minutes after we met, cried the king. Was it as much as that? said she. Now after a while, Viola said, Let us get down to the world again. We cannot stay here forever. Why not? said the king. However, they walked to the brow of the hill, and stood together gazing a while over the sunlit earth that had never been so beautiful to either of them, for their sight was newly washed with love, and all things were changed. "'Now I know how she looks from heaven,' said the king, "'and that is like heaven itself. Let us go, for I think she will still look so at our coming, seeing that we carry heaven with us.' So they went downhill to the forge, and there Viola said to her lover, I can stay no longer in this place where all men have known me as a lad, and besides, a woman's home is where her husband lives. But I live only in a barn, said William the king. Then I will live there with you, said Viola, and from this very night, 
but first I will shoe Pepper anew, for she is so unequally shod that she might spill us on the road. And that she may be shod worthily of herself and of us, give me what you have tied up in your blue handkerchief. The king fetched his handkerchief and unknotted it, and gave her his crown and scepter. And she set him at the bellows, and made three golden shoes, and shod the nag on her two forefeet and her off hind foot. But when she looked at the near hind foot, which the king had shod last of all, she said, I could not make a better, and therefore, like his father, the lad must shut his smithy, for he is dead. Then she put the three shoes she had removed into a bag with some other trifles, and while she did so, the king took what remained of the gold, and made it into two rings. This done, they got onto Pepper's back, and with her three shoes of gold and one of iron, she bore them the way the king had come. When they passed the bush hovel, they saw the wise woman currying her broomstick, and Viola cried, Great aunt, give us a blessing. Great niece, said the wise woman, how can I give you what you already have? But I will give you this. And she held out a horseshoe. Good gracious, said the king, this was once Pepper's. It was, said the wise woman, in her merriment at hearing you ask a silly question, she cast it outside my door. A little farther on they came to the guest-gate, but when the king, dismounting, swung it open, it grated on something in the road. He stooped and lifted a horseshoe. "'Wonder of wonders!' exclaimed the king. "'This also was Pepper's. What shall we do with it?' "'Hang it up, hang it up!' creaked the gate, and clicked home. In due course they reached the doves, and at the sound of Pepper's hoofs the brothers flocked out to meet them. "'Is all well?' cried the ring-dove, seeing the king only, and have you returned to us for the final blessing? "'I have,' replied the king, "'for I bring my bride behind me, and now you must make us one.' The gentle brothers, rejoicing at the sight of their happiness and their beauty, led them in, and there they were wedded. The doves offered them to eat, but the king was impatient to reach his barn by nightfall, so they got again on Pepper's back, and as they were about to leave, the ring-dove said, I have something of yours, which is in itself a thing of no moment. Yet, because it is of good augury, take it with you. And he gave the king Pepper's third shoe. Thank you, said the king. I will hang it over my barn door. Now he urged Pepper to her full speed, and they went at a gallop past the hawking sopers, who, hearing the clatter, came running into the road. "'Stay, gallopers, stay!' they cried, "'and make merry with us!' "'We cannot,' called the king, "'for we are newly married.' "'Good luck to you, then!' shouted the sopers, and with his awes and laughter flung something after them. Viola stretched out her hand and caught it in mid-air, and it was a horseshoe. "'The tale is complete,' she laughed, and now you know where Pepper picked up her stones. Soon after, the king said, Here is my barn. And he sprang down and lifted his bride from the nag's back and brought her in. It is a poor place, he said gently, but it is all I have. What can I do for you in such a home? I will tell you, said Viola, and putting her hand into her left pocket, 
she drew out the ruby, winking with the wine of mirth. You can dance in it. And suddenly they caught each other by the hands, and went capering and laughing round the barn like children. Hurrah! cried William. Now I know what a king should do in a barn. But he should do more than dance in it, said Viola, and putting her hand into her right pocket, she gave him the pearl, as pure as a prayer. Beloved, he should pray in it, too. And William looked at her, and knelt, and she knelt by him, and in silence they prayed the same prayer, side by side. Then William rose, and said simply, Now I know. But she knelt still, and took from her girdle the diamond, as bright as power, and she put it in his hand, saying very low, Oh, my dear king, but he should also rule in it. And she kissed his hand. But the king lifted her very quickly, so that she stood equal with his heart, and embracing her, he said, with tears in his eyes, And you, beloved, what will a queen do in a barn? The same as a king, she whispered, and drew from her bosom the opal, as lovely and as variable as the human spirit. With the other three stones you may, if you will, buy back your father's kingdom. But this, which contains all qualities in one, let us keep for ever, for our children and theirs, that they may know there is nothing a king and a queen may not do in a barn, or a man and a woman anywhere. But the best thing they can do is to work in it. Then, going out, she came back with the bag which she had slung on Pepper's back, and took from it her father's tools. In three weeks you learned all I learned in three years, said she. When I shod Pepper this morning I did my last job as a smith, for now I shall have other work to do. But you, whether you choose to get your father's lands again or no, I pray to work in the trade I have given you, for I have made you the very king of smiths, and all men should do the thing they can do best. So take the hammer, and nail up the horseshoes over the door, while I get supper, for you look as hungry as I feel. But there's nothing to eat, said the king ruefully. However, he went outside, and over the door he hung as many shoes as there are nails in one, the four Pepper had cast on the road, and the three he had first made for her. As he drove the last nail home, Viola cried, Supper is ready. And the king went into the barn, and saw a wedding cake. And now, if you please, Mistress Joan, I have earned my apple. End of The King's Barn <laughs>